Sideline Hustle Podcast. It is great to be here and to be joining you guys again after after a little bit more than a month off. Just to update you guys, so I, I was away because we were in the middle of the season at Wesleyan and a, a, every moment I was taking time to work on the podcast and try and get episodes out for you guys instead of doing more to prepare my players to win and perform at a high level on Saturday. I just I felt like I was cheating the kids and I felt like I wasn't doing right by the kids and, and doing the most I could to, to make my players better. Uh, so I made a decision that I was just going to put it on hold until the season's over and focus all my attention on them and we finished six and three at Wesleyan which was disappointing for us we thought we had a chance to win every game we played and, and we came up short but wide receiver wise we had a ton of success we ended up setting every single season school passing record that that Wesleyan had before this year the wide receiver group and our quarterback Mark Piccarillo who's a, a first team all-league player they had an unbelievable year we threw the ball all over the place total passing yards passing touchdowns receptions as a team I think we set all those records. On top of that, our top receiver, this kid Mike Bruller from Hamden, Connecticut, was the best player in the league this year. He finished the season in just nine games with 87 catches and 1,167 yards, both of which are school and league records. You know, he was the best player in the league this year. He's going to win NESCAC Offensive Player of the Year. Um, he's a final cut to be named Division Three All-American, but the kid is just unbelievable, and he worked really hard to get himself to this point. Really, the, the whole receiver group, when I got to Wesleyan two years ago, they were kind of known around here as the class clowns and as kids who were extremely talented and had a lot of potential, but you know, weren't disciplined, weren't showing up to things on time, weren't holding each other accountable. There was no real culture in the room. And, you know, it was, it was something I worked really hard to do the last two years was to build the culture in this room and, and build a family and give them something to believe in. And fortunately for me, these kids are incredible, amazing kids, and they bought into everything I was preaching. And, and we really did build a culture and we really did, you know, accomplish a lot here. So that's where I'm at talking now about the sideline hustle we've got some cool things coming up so we're going to start a segment called teach tapes and what we want to do with teach tapes is is just to really create an online presence that's teaching you the nuances of the game of football i think we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the nuances of the business and the behind the scenes aspect of coaching uh, i really want to get into all the details of what happens on the field during the game so that you guys can have a better understanding of what our jobs are like as players and coaches on game day um so so me and, and Mike Bruller, the receiver I was just telling you about that I've coached the last two years, him and I are going to put a video series together where we go through every aspect of wide receiver play. Everything I was able to teach him over the last two years, and, and especially things that translated to his success, from stance and start, to hand combat, to releases, to all the route technique, coverage recognition, um, and you know, we're gonna, we're gonna do drills on the field and film those, as well as back it up with film clips in-game and, and showing you guys how these drills translated to his success on the field. So I think that's going to be pretty cool. On, on top of that, I also want to start to break down film for you guys with a bunch of different guests, with Coach Friedgen, with, with Mike Teal, with a bunch of guys who are associated with this podcast already, and guys outside of the podcast that I think will bring some valuable insight. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Be on the lookout for Teach Tapes uh, coming on all the social media accounts and on the website. If you haven't followed us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube 
already, please do so at Sideline Hustle, or you can find all of our new content on our website at thesidelinehustle.com. I think it's going to be a pretty cool expansion and complement to the podcast that, that we've already built and, and are excited to get rolling again. You know, you call the play in the huddle, you break the huddle, you get to the line, and, you know, line has to make calls, the receivers are asking questions, and the running back has some questions, and the cadence has to go. So when you take all that and everything pretty much has to be nonverbal, right. you know, it, it adds a certain challenge. There's so much that goes into it. I mean, I don't yeah. think people really understand how much goes into it. Like Just dealing with noise. Like you prepare, you prepare, obviously, like, you know, verbally, like, communication all that, but then you have an also, like, a whole other game plan for, like, nonverbal, yep. like, how you're going to do your cadence, yep. how you're going to, you know, guys looking in at the ball, you know, this, you know, the guards looking back at me, mm-hmm. I kick my foot up, he taps the center, the center mm-hmm. gives one head bob, snaps the ball, like, exactly. all that goes in just to get a snap. Just and then snap after ball. the snap, yeah. you got to block 300-pound yeah. men. That's a great point. And, and, and move, so it definitely... It definitely adds a whole nother dimension to the game. Everybody, this is your host Drew Lieberman. What up? This is Gary Nova, your everyday quarterback, and you are now listening to the Sideline Hustle Podcast. Here's two guys: one guy who coached in the Big Ten, and one guy who played in the Big Ten, talking about their experiences. And I'm like, you did do a good job of getting rid of the football. I mean, yeah. Sometimes I got rid of it to other teams. Right, 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 right. Right, right. From the sidelines, we gotta hustle cause we gotta eat. From the sidelines, we got some goals that we still gotta reach. If you ever watched the movie, and the thing I loved about playing on the road was that the crowd noise kind of brought a sense of calmness. If you ever watched the movie Boondock Saints, uh, the guy who would always do the detective work, he would put his headphones in. He would kind of get in his zone, and he would just do what he had to do. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Mike Teal, head football coach at Don Bosco Prep, former quarterback for the Rutgers Scarlet Knights and the Seattle Seahawks. You get the play, and you get everything out, and you get up to the line of scrimmage. You don't have to worry about yelling cadence because you're going on a silent, a silent one, silent two, silent three. But to me, it was a sense of calmness where – you did everything you had to do as far as formation, shift, motion, get the get the play kind of started, make sure the play clock was good, and then it was just a deep breath, and you, I didn't hear anything. You you're about to be waiting for the snap, and you literally can't hear not like anything. Nothing. All you hear is just it almost like to the point where it's just like you literally just hear blank. This is Gary Nova, your everyday quarterback. Cause Nothing, it's so right? Loud, and you, right? You you get like lost in the yeah, noise. Yeah, like almost. you just can't hear anything. Yeah. Like you're just. You just see the ball about to get snapped, and you can't hear anything. And then all of a sudden, you throw a pass. Either they're cheering or they're quiet. Or they're not right, exactly. So yeah. it's crazy. Like you said, we've been in some places where you couldn't, you can't even hear yourself call mm-hmm. the play. Like you're you're screaming at the top of your lungs just to call a play. As a quarterback, I think I almost like accepted that challenge because it almost made me focus in more and over communicate and 
you know, screaming at the top of my lungs to say to play in the huddle. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, some guys can't hear me, and I had to say it three times in the huddle. The hardest thing for me playing on the road was getting the play in the huddle to the players. Third down is when it gets really loud. So I would always tell my coordinator, who John McNulty was the OC at the time, on third down, coach, if you can get the play into me fast, let me call it before it starts to get loud so this way I can communicate it to them. If it's, if it's a home game and, you know, they're being quiet for the offense, you need know, break the huddle, you know, you, you yo, what I got on this? Oh, you got an out, right? Yeah. When it's crowd noise, you can't ask what I got because yeah. you're not going to be able to hear. Yeah. So now this guy, I'm thinking this guy's going to run a, a timing 10-yard out and he just runs a go route. Now that's a huge plan to get up. You've got to be prepared for playing on the road mm. with the crowd noise because it is 100% a factor and it can dictate uh, the ability to you know keep the ball. As long as there's an operation and however you do it with the offensive line, the hardest guys that have to deal with crowd noise is the O-line, and specifically the two tackles because they're the furthest guys right. away from the ball. Right. Um, so they're, they're playing on anticipation, and that's why a lot of the times – you know, they're off sides because they're moving early because they're anticipating it. Yeah. I remember we were playing South Florida at the Buccaneers Stadium, and it wasn't even that packed, but it was like an ESPN game, but their student section was packed. It was right behind the end zone. So we got the ball. It was like the first possession, and uh, we were right behind, like right in front of the student section. And I remember, like, I think we got like a false start because we didn't have any silence cadence. Like, we were just going off of my voice. And I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, and guys are like, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. So we get off the sideline, and coach is like, He's like, what happened out there? Like, what Like, what was going on? And I was like, coach, they said they can't hear me. He's like, they can't hear you. He's like, there's like 30,000 people in the stadium right now. He's like, what do you mean they can't hear you? He's like, 30,000 people is nothing. And I'm like, coach, we're in front of the student section. He's like, ah, I don't give a He's like, you got to scream it way louder. He's like, there's no way. He's like, 30,000 people. He's like, they get more people in high school games out here. He's like, you telling me they can't hear you? But I'm like, yo, it was loud. It was loud, like, It yeah. was loud. Yeah. 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 I loved playing on the road because I didn't have to worry about yelling at cadence. You know, when you're... Not that it's you know tenuous and hard, but when you're yelling a cadence, you're you're using energy and you're you're kind of moving. Even thought around. too, like you're not totally focused on you know. You're thinking yeah. A little whereas bit with with a silent cadence, you know, if we're going a silent too, I'm giving the first leg. I know I'm not getting the snap. You know, I'm able to not worry about anything, but see where the defense is. You get the second one and you and you play the play. I think it does. It, it, it does force you to have a certain amount of focus. Yeah. It just makes kids where, where you know, if you're a receiver and you're running back, you're, you're looking for the signals. Like, oh, if I miss this, I can just ask the guy next to me. Like, <laughs> now when there's this crowd noise, it's like, man, if I don't see this play, I'm not going to know what I'm running in this play. But as a quarterback, as long as you got the play communicated to the offense and you were able to break the huddle, your work was done as far as communication. And, and, and struggling with the crowd noise. Yeah. yeah. You know, the one thing you got to make the, make sure that you do if you have to make a check or you have to change protection, you can't do it from back there. You got to get yourself up and you got to kind of go up and down the line. And talk to each line, yeah, man. But, and but you obviously have like signals or something to communicate to the, the receivers. receivers yeah. yeah, you, you check, you know, if you're changing protection, you don't have to worry about a hot to the weak side. Now you got to worry about a hot to the right, to the, you know, to the strong side. You give a little thumbs up or an okay sign to the X and he knows he's good. And you give, you know, a little shake to the to the Y. And now he knows, all right, well, if, if two come hot or, two, or one time whatever hot, yeah. the protection scheme yeah, is. Right. Uh, just so so everyone's on the same page, but it's all it's all signal communication. It's all body language communication. There were there were times, you know, towards the end of our careers, where Kenny Britt and me, we just look at each other and we knew what we we're doing. You know, you couldn't you couldn't communicate without mm -hmm. you know a, a signal. But if we just look at each other, we know. No, it's it's crazy, man. I mean, I remember my first like really loud. We played uh, against Arkansas my sophomore year. 
and it was like I think their stadium had like ninety thousand, and it was just like, like you couldn't hear anything, yeah, anything, and it was just like that was my first game where it was that environment, SEC crazy game. I guess what we were prepared for, we were we were actually like, well, we were communicating non-verbally, like nobody jumped offside, right. we were moving ball. And it was good. It was just, we took it as like a challenge. Like, all right, like we know it's going to be loud, but like, we're trying to win the game. Like, we yeah. can't afford, against them, we can't afford five-yard penalty. We can't afford this. And we had a senior-driven team. So they that helped, obviously, a lot. I mean, I think the most memorable stadium still has to be uh, Beaver Stadium, Penn State, Happy Valley. What's up, guys? This is Sean Stanley, defensive line coach at Wesleyan, former Penn State defensive lineman. I mean, there's nothing like it as, at a night game. It's it's definitely going to be a raucous uh, atmosphere. The fans are going to be into it. They're going to be singing Sweet Caroline, doing the wave, saying we are Penn State, everything like that. And they're, they're going to let you know that they're there. And it's definitely something that I'll never forget. We played at least two night games a year there, and it was probably some of the best experiences I had. 20, 2015, the year after you left, um, we played at Penn State, and it was a it was an 8 p.m. game. It was a, a like an, I think it was the ABC national game of the week or yeah. something. And it was also it was the first game that Coach Flood had been suspended for. First game Coach Flood was suspended, and Leonte was suspended. So our best player and our head football coach were both suspended for this game. Uh-huh. We're driving to Happy Valley. They striped out the stadium, so one section was blue, yeah. one section was white. The dope. whole student section was white with pom poms, right? Oh. Yeah, dope. We're playing, but we're playing in front of 105,000. Like, I don't think anyone had really played in front of that kind of crowd involved in the program at all, right? We don't have our head coach, we don't have our best player. Yeah. So we go into that game, like, we got a lot to overcome. Like, and they were talented, but they were definitely For a sure. beatable team. But yeah. we were like, all right, we're gonna have to really play well. It's like the third game of the year. We start the game. They, they, they started with the football. They punt down to the one-yard line. So we start the game on the minus one-yard line in front of their student section in like, with like the pom-poms going, like everything yeah. going crazy. I'm up in the booth, and I remember before we called that play, I opened the window of the booth just to stick my head outside to see how loud it was. And like, it was so loud, we couldn't hear anything in the press box. Like, yeah. It was so loud. You could tell. Like, no one could hear anything. We literally jumped the first three plays of the game. Like... Literally three plays in a row, like they couldn't even function. Yeah. And the big thing was like you you were talking about a little bit was in practice you do play crowd noise. Like you yeah. in practice you'll we used to play ecstatic really loud during team periods, so you couldn't hear anything in practice and you deal with it and it definitely does help you. Like it sucks during practice, your ears are ringing, but it definitely helps you learn how to communicate. But if you haven't played in an environment like that, like Happy Valley was that night, there's no getting used to it. And it showed that we were a team that had never played in front of 105,000 screaming drunk fans at 8 p.m. Like, yeah. th- there's no way to prepare for that because we could not function as a football team for the first like yeah. five minutes of that game. New Jersey, homegrown guy. You're the starting quarterback at Rutgers. I guess take me back to the first time you were booed off the field in your home state as a starting quarterback. The crazy thing about that was my senior year. Um, the thing with with being a, a college athlete, being a football player, being from New Jersey and playing for Rutgers, playing for my home university, there there becomes a level of, of expectation for you. And at the time when I came there, there were articles, I was the savior of the program, which was com- complete BS. Right. Because I was, I was a three-star kid who loved being home and being in New Jersey. But th- there becomes a level of expectation for you. When you don't uphold that level of expectation that the fans have set out for you, there becomes a disappointment and a frustration with them. How did it change getting booed? When it first happened to me, I was like in shock. I didn't know how to really react. I was like 
upset, you know what I'm saying? Because I never had that happen. But then, like, as we went on, like, after my freshman year, I was kind of, like, still upset. Then my sophomore year, I was just more upset that I played bad and we kind of, like, lost the opportunity. And then my senior year, I just really didn't care about what anybody yeah. said. Yeah. Like, I was just so numb to it. Like, somebody could have literally wrote a paragraph about how much they hate me. And I would have just literally looked at it and walked away. Like, I, it didn't make any difference to me. Like, all the booing, I was, like, numb to everything. Yeah. Even the cheers. Like, you were just. I was just, like. Because I knew it's not, like, from some people it is from a genuine place. Like, I'm not going to say that there isn't, like, most, like, Rutgers fans who are, like, die hard. But, like, for some people it's just, like, it's not genuine. When we were losing, they weren't there. And now Mm -hmm. we're winning, they come. So it's, like, that's not a genuine cheer. So I never really cared about that. I was always just with my teammates. My redshirt sophomore year, we had a great team. I I didn't play great. Turned the ball over way too much. My, My... Redshirt junior year, I probably played the best football I had played at kind of the natural development. And then my senior year, going into you know my last year, uh, there was a pre-draft grade on me of a early to you know early to mid rounder, so anywhere from first to fourth round, depending on how I played. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an expectation for our team because we had Kenny Britt, we had Tyquan Underwood, uh, we had graduated Ray, but we had a bunch of really good players: McCourty Twins, mm-hmm. Courtney Green. There were so many good players coming back and. We started the year one and five, and by week three, as I would run out onto the field, the booze would just rain down. You could not hear it. You know, for me, I got to the point in my career in Manly where it was screw it. I was just going out and playing. Where I always struggled and what always bothered me the most was the fact that my family sat in the stands. And my family had 60 season tickets. They they would do anything for me. I remember they're my family, right. and that they had fifty five thousand people, you know, booing as I ran on the field. <laughs> as their son and it runs was on the Obvious field. that it was for me. Yeah. Like there was no doubt about <laughs> yeah. it. Um, so I always struggled with with my parents being in the stands, with my little brother and sister being in the stands, with my my whole family being there. For me, whatever. I wasn't performing. I understand it. There there's a piece of Expectation and there's a piece of professionalism that if you're not performing, they're paying money. You're supposed mm-hmm. to perform. I, I get that. I, mm-hmm. I understand that completely. Mm-hmm. But what people don't get is that I was a 20 year old kid and my whole family was sitting in the stands. Yep. That's what bothered me the yep. most about that. We come out like we have a good drive. We get down to like the five and we run like a like a read play and we fumble the ball. Like me and PJ like fumble the exchange. They pick it up. We get the ball again, we drive down. I don't know, something happened, we messed up. Like, we basically shot ourselves in the foot like the five, first five drives. Then I get the ball, I throw like a terrible pass, gets picked, I get hit, my helmet pops off, they run it back for a touchdown. And like, they're booing, like everybody's leaving. It's, yeah. like, it's like second quarter. So it's like 24 to seven, and uh, Janarian gets the punt, runs it back for a touchdown, then we're like back in the game. No, we're good, and we score, and it's like, you guys were just telling, like, everybody to boo me, get me yeah, off the yeah, field. Yeah. And now you guys are, like, celebrating everything. That's when you really see, like, the true colors of the fans. Mm-hmm. It's, it's part of the business. You're playing Division One full scholarship football. Like the, like you said, there's an expectation. But I think that there's so much. It, it's Fans so easily get caught up in the emotion of the game. They start treating these kids and like with such disrespect. I think it's a double-edged sword. You know, they're... they're you can't have home field advantage and you can't have a program without a fan base. And the best programs in the country are the best fan bases. Mm-hmm. And it's not always going to be, you know, great and, and excellent and, you know, we're winning every game and everyone's playing. It's, it's not realistic. 
I think the biggest thing that the players need to understand is that they're different than every every other student who walks foot on that campus. There's the kids who sit in the same history class with them don't get to be on ESPN, mm-hmm. don't get their college paid for, mm-hmm. uh, don't leave college without any bills. Uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to leave college without one single bill. You know, my sister's going to pay off her college debt for the next 20 years. You know, it's just so that there's there's an expectation and a and a almost a requirement that you do perform because you're getting these benefits of being a student athlete and being a scholarship football player. You know, I always looked at football as a learning experience. This is Ralph Friedgen, former head coach at the University of Maryland. Not just as a football player, I, I, I would hope that our players were developing life experiences that were going to help them over in life itself, you know, because every day is not a great day on the football field. And when you get into the real world, it's the same way. It's how, how can you overcome these things? So a lot of the things that you're dealing with from a day-to-day standpoint, I think that's where the, the education really comes in for an, a college athlete that the normal students don't get. I mean, they have the regular life, you know, no doubt, no doubt that there's more stress, there's more to, to go to class and to, to be a student and still be a major college football player or basketball player. You're, you're working your way through school. You're earning that money. And it is not an easy existence, but what you're learning and to do that, that a normal student should make you a better competitor when you go out into the real world and have to compete against that individual that didn't go through the hardships and the competitiveness that you were doing while you were in school. And I I really believe that that's what helps make people successful in life. You know, when my football career is over and and, and I have dreams of, of being like a sports commentator one day and I'm up against a guy who might be talented or smarter than me or something like that. Yo, what's up? It's Leontae Carew, Miami Dolphins, Rutgers legend, and you're listening to the Sideline Hustle. You know, Coach Toll always made me think of, you know, just outworking the guy, you know, just being prepared and, and waking up before the guy and just, just not letting the guy outcompete you to, to win that job. You know, he was a guy that wasn't afraid to tell you you know, that he loves you and, and that, you know, he was going to tell you every single day that, you know, he loves you and he's proud of you. And and he just wants, you know, you to be a not only a great football player, but a great man. You know, I had three girls, so I was always looking at my players as my son. And I wanted them to be able to gain that advantage because we're, we're preparing you for the rest of your life. We're not preparing you for the next four years. We're preparing you for the next 40 years. And that's how I... That's how I looked at coaching football. Yeah, winning is part of that. Learn how to win is part of that. But when you learn how to win on the football field, all of those same traits carry over into real life. But then on the flip side is the guys who have scholarships are 18 to 22 years old. So they're they're young kids, you know, learning how to be men. So I think it's important uh, from a a staff standpoint, from a head coach, from a a coordinator, from a program standpoint, to make sure that these kids understand that there's a a level of expectation for them uh, but also provides resources for them to talk to people or be able to handle all the pressures that do come within. You know, for me, the pressure was never to go throw a touchdown pass. The pressure was to win the game. As a, as a college football player, as a quarterback, you've got to be mature beyond your years. Yeah. You've got to, 
you got to grow up. And I always remember, like, my mom and dad saying, like, why doesn't anything ever bother you? Like, because it didn't. I, I just didn't let those things negatively affect me. Now, I, I had a great support system. I had a great uh, locker room with teammates who I, you know, trusted and loved and believed in, and they believed in me. Um, I, I did speak with a sports psychologist, which was the best thing that I ever did. I wish I had really? done it earlier in my career because they make light of a lot of things, and that makes a lot of sense. When did you start doing that? Uh, when I was a junior. I would, I would suggest any college athlete that struggles at all on the field with being able to move on, to do anything, to, to talk to a sports psychologist like that because it's not, it's not that you have an issue or a problem. They're helping you uh, to be able to figure out how your mind works and how to move forward mm-hmm. or how to get to the next play right. quicker. Um, That's Because everyone does, but yeah. how do you do it quicker? Right. And uh, I talked with Dr. Charlie Marr who, who works with LeBron. Um, works with the Cleveland Indians and then the Cleveland Cavaliers and then consults for a bunch of different professional programs um, and organizations and it was the best thing I ever did in my life. So uh, when I spoke with him, you know, when I heard my name booed on the field, it was GRA. And for me, it was get, read, act. Get the play from the sideline, read the defense, act on it. Keep it that simple. And so you and would just, you would hear booze, you'd be GRA, GRA, yeah. GRA. Even, yeah. even not even with booze, after a great play. Yeah, GRA. No, because you never see the ball completed in college because you're always on the ground, but the cameras <laughs> always disappear. Yeah. Yeah. So I throw a dig right to Kenny Britt, and when we were at home, if it was complete, there were you roars. Right. If you would know. Right. If it was quiet, it was incomplete. Yeah. And, and you just know that. So you're on your back, and there's cheers, and I'd just be telling myself, all right, GRA, GRA, let's go, next play. That's cool. So, so those types of things help you build mental, mental toughness. Uh, I think the off-season program that you go through as a college football player helps you build mental mm-hmm. toughness. And then ultimately, it's the coaching staff's job to make sure their players are mentally tough enough to handle the situations. And I, I remember my redshirt freshman year during spring ball, Coach Ciano, for whatever reason, that day was my day. And every player kind of had a day. That day was my day. He said everything from, you know, me sucking in high school to, you know, the only reason why I was, you know, here was because I went to Bosco and they were trying to get other players, you know, from Bosco to, you know, nothing seriously personal, but trying to break you mentally. And that's, that's, that's to me what college football, what makes good players great, what makes great players, you know, the best and what makes, you know, good players average is where's your... Where's your ability to be mental tough, mentally tough when the situation calls for mm-hmm. it? Um, but I agree with you that it's like the birthplace of college football, but their fan base is there. It's a New York fan base. So that's what it is, man. Like you, you look at it, like you got to give people a reason to go to Rutgers football games because there's too much other stuff to do. Exactly. I think like you hit around the nose. There's so much stuff to do. There's always, you know, you go to the city, you catch a Yankee game, right. you catch Giants game, Jets game, Red Bulls game, wow, concert, everything, concert, yeah. comedy clubs, whatever. It's just always something to do. And if you're not winning, people rather just do that than go watch you play. And like I remember our first year in the Big Ten, there was a ton of hype. So like the Penn State game, the first Big Ten game in school history was sold out like six months in advance. Same with the Michigan game. And like even like when we had the night games every year, Rutgers like those would get good crowds, but otherwise like, we played Wisconsin at homecoming and like it was raining and literally no one Nobody came. came out, yeah. And you know, and like there, there have been other games like that. Like we play a two lane and it's half full where it's like, I, I understand we're supposed to win by 30, but it, it'd be nice to see everybody there. No, nah, no doubt. And if you see like when we played in Nebraska, like they've sold out like since 1975. Exactly. Or crazy. Dude, like, like 480 straight games. No. It's just, but th- there's the difference right there. there is that nothing else to do out there. So when I was in Nebraska, I was talking to their assistant coach before yeah. the game. And I was like, man, like y'all have a beautiful stadium. Like 
people everywhere. He's like, oh, you don't understand how crazy people are about football here. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, there's one road that goes from Lincoln to Omaha. He goes, that road is filled up like with traffic literally at 10 p.m. the night before a one o'clock game. Like people travel for like 12 days, get on that road and sit there and they got nothing else to do. It's like my their whole fall is like, I'm, I have six, seven Nebraska football games to go to. And like, that's everything for them. And that's why they've sold out every year for like 50 years. Yeah, that was a great experience to see because I never really experienced anything like that. You know, Ohio State was, was good, but it was like their homecoming or whatever. Like, I just felt like in Nebraska, that was like their... It was you could just feel like that was like a family gathering. Like exactly. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it was little kids running around. Yeah. Like it almost felt like a high school game, like a college. Like but with but with eighty five thousand people exactly. there, that really is what it felt like. Like an old school pep rally. For like real. like all the fans and parents are into it, yeah. and everyone knows everyone's name. But I, it was eighty five thousand people. I, I remember I got hurt that game, and I was like on the sideline, and they're like, "Come on, number ten, like get back in the game." Yeah. Like, nice people, <laughs> right. like cheering for so, us so, after we lost. And stuff. Exactly. <laughs> I remember. I'll never forget walking off the field and we lost by like 17 or something like we were competitive but you know they, they, they beat us pretty good and we're walking off the field and they gave us a standing ovation they're like great effort guys like thanks for trying because they're just happy that they traveled all this way on a saturday and to see an entertaining game and we played hard we made some plays and they were grateful for that like that was the craziest fan base experience. And it's back to the rural society. <laughs> yeah, right. and, that's it. and now you go travel six hours back on that same road. No, but that was probably that was probably my favorite experience. I don't know where. That know. was my favorite stadium that we went to. That was crazy. And you knew like the support. Like when he broke that record, I think the receiver broke a receiving record. Yeah, like, he did. They stopped the game. Exactly. They, they announced it that everybody gave him a standing standing ovation. ovation. I remember when I when I broke the touchdown record, I found out in the locker room afterwards <laughs> from like a kid who didn't even play the game. Like, yo, congrats. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, you broke Mike record i was like what what record i don't even know what you're talking about no one stopped yeah, the game no one acknowledged game, it nobody. <laughs> like we can't wait till this kid graduates <laughs> we lost to cincinnati at home in 07 my junior year and uh went home it was a crappy night you know i didn't go out yeah. went and went to bed uh wake up the next morning to go to the facility to watch the film and try to get things going the right way and, and both my car windows were smashed in um, so I lived off campus on the street, and I had an explorer. But everyone, you know, kind of knows knew, who yeah. is knew who. Knew what Mike T was driving, yeah. Kind of in a sense, and, yeah. and I lived in a house with three other football guys, so it's not like it was it was a secret that you know I lived there, and two other guys or three other guys lived there. Uh, so I came out, and and my windows were smashed. I called my dad. I didn't know what to do. I was like, "That what should I do? Is yeah. I file a police report?" And you know, insurance covered. Right. You know, so you know things that you got to deal with. That did that affect you at the time? Like, did that uh, bother you? No, because at that point, I had I had gone through enough where, you know, if anything, it drove me to yeah. to spend an extra twenty minutes in the film room to watch film mm-hmm. compared to leaving early to go get takeout on Bush campus with the rest of the guys. I would let everyone go and I would stay. It, right. It fueled me to basically say you. Yeah, everyone else. yeah, yeah, and that's 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 probably the only way to approach it. And I think if you look at the best athletes to ever do things, there's always something that drives mm-hmm. them, fuels them to prove the doubters wrong, and that's mm-hmm. what that did for me. You know, the one thing that I was never ready for was we lost to Cincinnati in 06, so we beat Louisville on the Thursday night game. Uh, we had bumped up, we were in the top 10, I want to say we were six or seven. Yeah. We, were, we were up there, we played Saturday night, ESPN, prime time. Um, Mike Patrick was on the call. Like yeah. it was like the game, the game, yeah. Um, in Cincinnati, and they blew us out. I threw three interceptions. Jeez. We turned the ball over five times. We couldn't stop anything. It was it was a debacle. <clears throat> so that Monday, I'm walking to class, and uh, I hear these 
guys, like, there's like a group of three or four guys behind me. And I'm like, that's it, that's him, I'm like, fuck it, that's him. And basically, they had bet the game um, through a bookie and we lost, and they were gonna try to jump me because we lost the game and they thought that I had something to do with it. <laughs> yeah. As I walk down the hallway, I turn the corner, and it just so happens that Jeremy Zuta, who's now playing for the Ravens, and Pedro Sosa, who was the left tackle at the time, happened to be standing there. If those two guys weren't there, I was probably fighting in the hallway. Four guys. Four guys. Yeah. Um, and and it, I walked up to them, and you know, I said, what's up, guys? And you know, kind of yeah. let them know, but didn't say anything, and they right. got it. And yeah. you know, those other guys kind of disappeared. And from then on, uh, through the rest of that year, I would make sure that I would never walk around campus, especially after a bad game, by myself because <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't, didn't want to get, get jumped. jumped. When you start talking about Saturday college football, college game day, ESPN primetime games, I mean, there's there's a business aspect to it that college kids are inherently involved with, whether they like it or not, whether they realize it or not. There's a business, a, a very big business that is involved with their ability to go and play college football. And and that's that's really what the fans, in my opinion, that's what the fans kind of drive themselves off of. You want a winning team that you can be proud of, that right. you can kind of boast and, and you know brag about to your your competitors, whether it's in the office at work or whether it's you know at the gym when, when you're working out with someone. You want to have pride in, in your school. And I think that's that's always the happy medium is when, when they're struggling or when they're not doing well, they're still kids, but at the same time, there is a business aspect to it. The, the big thing I think, man, for Rutgers that they could do, I think another thing that makes them a hidden gem is obviously their proximity to New York City. And like you talk about like the next closest school is what, like a Syracuse, a Yukon, they're two hours, two and a half hours away. They're the only BCS school within driving distance in New York City. Like I remember when we were there, we would say, oh yeah, we're New York City's football team. We put like a billboard up in Times Square, but like that only goes so far. You gotta give the people of New York a reason to care. And my idea that I've always thought they should do at Rutgers is start a football camp, like a, a football camp for the youth in every borough of New York City and get all your players up there, all the coaches, all these ex-players, all these guys that can be role models, especially find kids who made it out of the Newarks and the Trentons, like of inner city areas, get them in front of these kids and talk about, just be role models for the kids, teach them some football and let these kids in bad neighborhoods know you can use football as a way to escape. Like because football, there's not a lot of fields in inner city neighborhoods, it's, it's hard to access. There's a perception, I'm sure it's a reality for a lot of places that they can't travel to go play football, but a, a means of starting a football camp, starting some sort of culture where, hey, you guys can get good grades, and if you're a great football player, you can find some place to play and use that as a means of escape. And you do that in Queens, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan. You do that everywhere in New York City, and you give back. You give a 1,000 T-shirts out, and you give back to that community. You immediately have four or 5,000 Rutgers fans right there. For sure. And then you do that the next year. And then they start telling, man, like, Jimmy's all motivated now because the Rutgers players came and and really like you know gave him something to believe in. And you really make an impact in that community. No other school in the country, football program in the country, is even capable of driving there and making an impact in the yeah. community. You show up, you make an impact there, you give back to the kids, and you create this a reason to like Rutgers football. Not Because, you again, right now, you can't bank on whether or not you're going to win games. Like It might be a long time before they win games. Nah, yeah. But you can do all that stuff where it's like, man, well, I really love Rutgers because they've done something for me. I'm going to root for them regardless, win, loss, whatever. Just building building the brand that will help that, that program tremendously. Yeah. Whether, like you said, camps in inner city or camps or – I know they do a lot of community service, but they like do. even they more, do. like handing yeah. stuff out, going to camps. 
I mean, I think they're going in the right direction, but you gotta claim New York City. Like it's the only thing you have that separates you. Really, like if you if you think of a reason like, why am I gonna go to Rutgers over Michigan over Ohio State? If you're talking about what's gonna separate you, it's you're changing the culture, but you have access to this city, and New York City loves us. And you know, if New York City's hyped about Rutgers, yeah. it, it changes the whole atmosphere of the program. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's all we've got for episode number nine of the Sideline Hustle podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. It feels great to be back. I couldn't be more excited for the future of the Sideline Hustle and everything we're trying to do. So make sure you guys stay tuned in for Teach Tapes, our new segment on social media. We're going to start to post content on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube in the next day or so. You can find us on all those platforms. Follow us right now at Sideline Hustle. You can also find all of that content and more on our website, thesidelinehustle.com. Uh, to be honest, I'm not really sure what we're going to come out with yet next Monday. Uh, it could be Coach Friedgen's bio piece, or it could be something totally different. Just stay up to date with us on social media at Sideline Hustle, and you won't miss a thing. In the meantime, keep your eyes out for teach tapes and other new content. Go tell five of your buddies about the Sideline Hustle. Continue to spread the word, and we will see you guys next week. Okay. Yeah. Uh, check it. Uh, I'm from where they barely make it Houses getting raided Porch hair braiding Late rent payment Lack of motivation No father figures I ain't seen his ass in ages Not too many know about my trials and tribulations Talking to my mom just like that with my shoelaces Ain't tripping when I say this